Hello and welcome to Climate Emergency Manchester, or SEM for short. This is the second of the July Scrutiny Week podcasts. We're splitting them up a little bit to make it easier on you, our lovely, lovely listeners. I've got Adam and Lauren in the room. We're going to move on to Health Committee and then the big ticket item of the Environment and Climate Change Scrutiny Committee, which is the Climate Change Framework 2.0. We're going to look at the Health Scrutiny Committee now. Adam, you had something on the heat wave. Yeah, so that was urgent business that took up a fair chunk of time and meant they had to play catch up with all the other items. So I think they spent a good 20, 30 minutes talk. Yeah, and that's good in terms of not ignoring that there was a heat wave. We did break record temperatures in Manchester. I think it got to 36 degrees, which I didn't think was ever possible. I thought I was coming up north and I'd be cooler up here than living down south in London, where it reached 40 degrees and houses started burning and all the rest of it. Uh, which was disturbing for me to to see, uh, especially it was in areas of East London where I'm from. Uh, yeah, it just shows you like we are so unprepared for this. Yeah, that grass can catch fire and then burn down a, a load of houses. I don't think people really grasp that that can happen. You know, fires can just start when things get so dry. It just becomes tinder, and then houses go up. Or I think there was something like a, somebody's green bin mm-hmm. just caught on fire. And then it, you know, kind of took out um, a load of fences and like a back of a house. We see it in other countries. We associate it with hotter climes than mm. the UK. Um, we've seen in Manchester and, and um, in the hills around Manchester in recent years, the... The Saddleworth Moors. Yeah, the peat. The moorland fires, fires. yeah. And I think that the fire brigade have got a good justification to ban disposable barbecues. Why the hell do we need them? Like, we did, that didn't get mentioned at health scrutiny. Because it, but... it happens every year. The they, um, barbecues are banned on the moors, but people do it anyway. You can't enforce it, can no. you? No. But, no, they weren't talking about that. They were talking about mainly resilience within the health system, within the social care system, primary care. You know, There was issues raised around, you know, making sure that messaging was going out via councillors to potentially vulnerable residents and vulnerable communities. I think there is good evidence to show that if you come from a marginalised or ethnic minority community, you're more likely and more susceptible to heat than if you're not. Mm -hmm. So there needs to be specific training around that, I think, and there should be specific attention paid by councillors in those areas, like Gorton, like Hume, Mossside... Clayton, Newton Heath, that sort of area, because, you know, the combination of being potentially trapped in your house in an area with higher crime, less access to quality green space, um, you know, poorer standard housing, all these things like accumulate and leave you in probably extremely uncomfortable circumstances, if not dangerous for people with underlying health issues. You know, it was, it was reported that the, the health system was resilient, certainly had an uptick in demand during that heat wave but they managed to keep things under control according to them but yeah i think there was some pretty nasty behavior around sort of councillor pat carney of harper a um in terms of well he made a sort of public statement 
generally as he does, bashing the Tories, which is understandable considering the amount of cuts, saying public service matters. Uh, and the councillor, Kua Bayunu from Hume, took issue with that and said that he was co-opting the Black Lives Matters statement and using that for his own means, which I can understand where she's coming from, considering there's been lots of statements from racist people around all lives matter or white lives matter, so I can completely understand where she's coming from. But she didn't get an apology, she just got a doubling down, uh, saying, I've been using socialist language for more than 50 years, like, it was nothing, so... And then it continued a bit later in the meeting, towards the end, didn't it? Um, Councillor Bayunu talked about, it was a report being presented and she just said, you've not ticked the impact assessment for environment or diversity and inclusion and just said, I think that's wrong. Next time, could you provide the impact assessment for both of those? Seemed pretty reasonable, not exact controversial um, and Councillor Carney interjected to clarify that that member doesn't speak for the council she was a short time in the Labour Party and a shorter time in the Labour group we're all familiar with the fervour of born-again politicians but so long as people who come to this committee realise she does not speak for Manchester Council so basically just demonstrating the kind of behaviour that made her defect from the Labour Party in the first place. It suggests a, a window into the culture that we don't get to see very much because councillors can't be that honest about the internal machinations of the council. Use that word twice in the last two podcasts, so I'm impressed with that. Tick that off your, uh, your bingo card. It was it came across quite poorly, I thought, on Councillor Carney. It suggested this idea of, you know, you're elected to represent your ward, but don't expect to be taken too seriously or rocking the boat for the first, I don't know, five, ten years. Just stay quiet, keep in line, and us who have been here for decades will show you how it's done. Yeah, I think it's a, a very dated view, possibly something that we hoped would be left with councillor or lease uh, in the old guard, but obviously there's still ghosts around of, of that sort of way of thinking. And yeah, it's it's really nasty to see. It's Is that really what we want to see in our city council, in a scrutiny committee? You know, just bickering and sort of outright nastiness just because someone decided to defect because they've, you know, said that they've been under a lot of pressure, they've been bullied, they've been uh, racially abused, and that's what you get. And obviously we've not seen any of that, that because it wasn't in public, but this was public. Yeah, I didn't think it was a good look. He, he also seemed to confuse the council with the Labour group. And the scrutiny committee. Yeah. They're not one and the same thing. The council is not the Labour group. Well, I guess it's, it's almost been, the same yeah, thing. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? The masks are starting to drop a little bit. Mm -hmm. Like, is the council the Labour group? Well, it is from a political point of view, but there's also 7,000 employees that are not part of the Labour group. And five 
opposition councillors, two Lib Dems, three Green Party, they are a part of the council. They're not part of Labour group. And how do they see the role of scrutiny? Is it just a tick box exercise to pat their colleagues on the back, say well done? Or is it to actually scrutinise their work? And you'd hope to see in scrutiny committees, quite important role of scrutinising the exec, that they can find a way to work across parties reasonably well, no? I think, you know, whether Pat Carney meant it or not, he didn't take it in the right way. He didn't try to be humble and say, I may have made a mistake. I didn't mean to offend you. No, he doubled down and said, I'm not apologising, which is uh, not necessarily the way... How are we going to solve anything if people aren't necessarily willing to admit to mistakes? Which is something we keep going on about, and that's the sort of culture we need to root out of a council if it's ever going to change. So we're not averse to giving gold stars to good behaviour on this podcast. Councillor Carney's on the naughty step. He needs to take a time out. Ten minutes and think about what you've done. Put it on the sin bin, yeah. Okay. If we can move on, was there anything else from health that you wanted to talk about? I think there was a little bit about the food board. So there was a, a sort of discussion around, I guess, the poor quality of the UK food strategy that came out. Obviously, the conversation was dominated by the cost of living crisis, the the pressures of um, on people being able to afford quality food, um, and again, like there's confusion around whether you know having dialogues around with supermarkets, for example, and it was discussed. You know, Pat Carney wanted to have uh, a dialogue with supermarkets, but. The lady who was there to present from an organisation, an NGO called Food Sync, said, well, they don't actually do anything locally. Like, there's very little autonomy that supermarket locally will have by their managers and their staff to do anything beyond probably shift management. Everything gets done centrally. So I think she was trying to say, well, what, what do you expect to come from a dialogue with mm-hmm. supermarkets? And I don't know what he was trying to expect beyond sort of potentially a mere symbol that they're talking to supermarkets because, you know, a lot of people are under pressure to buy cheap food, not to buy good food. Um, there was some very, like I think, potentially a little scandal in there. And I know you like your scandal. Um, that some schools are, are potentially um, subsidising uh, teaching assistants with school meal funding so they're cutting back on school meal funding so they don't spend as much on the ingredients in school meals to actually be able to afford teaching assistance, which is crazy. And I think a statement that uh, Councillor Russell of Northenden, I think it is, said was that, you know, the, the government, and she was obviously talking about the Tory government in, in power in, in Westminster, are balancing the books and the backs of hungry children, which I thought was quite poignant and probably true right now. Mm. Being a school governor myself, it, they are under, under under significant pressure. And stories in in uh, the media recently about teachers and teaching assistants bringing food for pupils. Well, it's stark. Forty percent of kids in this city are living in food poverty, and that's just mental. We're in twenty twenty two. It's a huge issue. It's going to be an even worse issue this winter when fuel prices go up. Yeah, the child poverty. Um, statistics that were announced recently are shocking for the northwest overall. It was something like thirty 
32% in, in the 30s and then Manch central Manchester in the 40s. Well, kind I think this thing, like in Harper Hay, Pat Carney's home ward, it's something like 75%. It's ridiculous. And they, they did a whole piece on the news recently about it. And it, it is crazy when you think about that. But is a dialogue with the supermarkets really going to achieve no. anything? Is it right that the... Um, so Manchester City's school catering used to be in-house and then they sold it off. Um, so that was one kind of important lever that they had to be able to give kids in Manchester decent, healthy meals. And we've lost it. Yeah, and I think there wasn't really... There was a little touch on that, so they talked a little bit about that, but um, I don't know whether there's any appetite, and that's... I don't know, that's not a pun intended, but I'll take it, um, to actually bring it in-house to, to to look at that. And there was a little random tirade from Councillor Newman of Woodhouse Park to say, stop demonising meat-eating. It should... Yeah, everyone should be treated equally. Wow. Out of nowhere, I don't know whether it was specifically after something was said behind closed doors, but just the bloody vegans, they just yeah, yeah, and you know, I know that there's councillors that are vegan, there's councillors that are veggie, but and we should all be eating more veg and fruit. Doesn't feel like that should be a controversial statement. We should be eating less meat and more fruit and veg. Just a statement for the record, we should not be vilifying people that eat meat. It was like, no one's talking about this. And it, where did this come from? But it just a waste of oxygen, that statement for sure. But Can we skip on to environment climate change? Yeah, it's getting late, isn't it? It is. I wanted to briefly mention the, I call it the CCAP quarterly update. I think everyone does, but it's the Climate Change Action Plan quarterly update so these are the council's um own actions to get to their own targets we won't talk about it at length but the chair councillor shilton godwin did mention uh, our lovely trees and the new trees that have been planted since january this year quite a few near me there's about seven outside my house my house isn't that big one or two are outside my house and the rest are just down the road um, and heard reports in Didsbury, in Withenshaw. Um, There's loads around my area as well, yeah. And how are they looking? Uh, well, the ones on Kingsway at the end of Kingsway are looking pretty sad, funnily mm-hmm. enough, because they've been through a heatwave, and I don't think they've been watered since they got put in. No, I think the the ones near me as well were looking very sad on Tuesday uh, evening during the heatwave. So the ones I've got, and I'm assuming yours are the same, all have watering tubes. I'm pretty sure that's the standard that they put in, yeah. And I've never seen... I've watered in that watering tube and I've never seen anyone else come and water any of them. Two of the trees have lost their leaves already. The All of them were going brown at the beginning of July. Um, there was a very sad been in one. a few months. As we were walking on our way here, I saw one that was looking extremely droopy. And that's even after we've had a fair bit of rain mm. this week. I suspect... This is going to be another scandal that's just going to unfurl because probably a lot of these trees will die in this heatwave. So that whole thing about planting a million trees in the city of trees uh, is actually going to be a, a victim of the climate crisis and the climate emergency. The trees heatwave. that we should have planted 20 years ago, by which point they would have been sort of semi-mature and actually offer some shade. 
uh, which would have helped us during the heat wave. At the very least though, let's plant them, but keep them alive during the heat wave. So I just wanted to call that out because if there were a scrutiny committee in August, I think SEM would probably have urged for it to be on the urgent business because trees that have been planted, all the resources put into growing those trees for several years to get them to this point and then plant them out and they potentially are dead in their first year. So that's a real concern. So I wanted to note that that was brought up and that um, Tracy Rawlins, the, the councillor for Bagley, who is the um, exec member responsible for the environment, has ha also had reports on that and agreed to respond. So we can assume that will go on the action list. And I hope we'll hear back on it in short order, but it could be many months before we do. So gold star to Councillor Shilton Godwin for looking out for the trees. Now let's get into it. The Climate Change Framework 2.0. Anyone want to introduce it? Well, maybe a little bit of background to it, because this is not the first framework, as you said. It's 2.0. So there's a, a 1.0 that came and was published in February 2020. And, uh, you know, they called it a live document, blah, 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 always changing. But it literally had no detail to it. It was some very high level ambitions around becoming a more sustainable city. That's pretty much all it said over a number of pages. Um, we actually had a, a guest um, contributor who, who pretty much said that there needs to be more vision, more pathway to this. Uh, and a, a few, yeah, they sort of commissioned a, a consultancy to basically create that vision and pathway that they didn't have in the first version in 2020, even though they've been reporting on things since 2013 and why there wasn't a visual pathway before that point, um, well, still hasn't been explained. This was promised to bring us smart targets more detail meat on the bone how far do you think they went to delivering that i think there's definitely there are more numbers in it than i, I think there ever have been beyond like the tons of carbon that was in the first one uh so that's good i think so they have numbers and targets that they have to meet how they're going to meet them i think is very much missing mm. and i think that's a significant issue because you know i've done work around scenario analysis in the in the past uh, professionally and there just seems to be you know they, they do nothing is basically they still manage to get five percent reductions by doing nothing that's their sort of do nothing scenario they do something scenario says that you can meet 10 percent per annum reductions which uh are just about as much as you know just slightly under what we got through lockdown. So they think they can get something that's close to lockdown levels of carbon reduction year on year until 2025. Uh, and then they have to triple it to 29%. Uh, and I don't understand how they think they're going to get anywhere close. They're going to triple it from 2025. Yeah, to 30% a year. Let's, let's frame that um, particular pathway for listeners. So... In the hot seat was Mike Wilton, who is the chair of Manchester Climate Change Partnership, and Sam Nicholson, 
the director for Manchester Climate Change Agency, who work very closely together and are responsible for this report. Um, and they presented a graph that showed our carbon budget. Now, we've discussed before how we've missed the um, 13% annual savings, annual reductions, um, so many years now that it's increased to 16% year-on-year reductions if we are still to be zero carbon by 2038. And they've drawn that nice blue line looking slightly terrifying um, on a graph. Then they've showed a red dotted line that says if we continue at the roughly 5% annual emission reductions that we've had outside of the pandemic, so yet in the pandemic we, we reduced by 11% in 2020, thanks to lockdown, but outside of that we've averaged about 5% a year, we'll have used up our carbon budget by 2027. Terrifying, let's come back to that. Then there's another scenario where they suggest this idea of 10% savings until 2025 and then it falls off a cliff, 29% year on year reductions to still be zero carbon by 2038. We talked about the term magical thinking. Well, I think what they've justified by saying that is that you need a few years of breathing space in order to get the conditions right to then be able to create that magical thinking that will get us the the twenty nine percent reductions. Like, I you know, again, it's always cut us some slack. Is generally the message we can never actually meet what we think we should be doing. Um, and I don't even know whether they've got a ten percent, like whether they've got sufficient action in their plan to meet 10%. I don't see anything that's going to meet anything like lockdown levels mm. worth of emission reductions. You know, they're not talking about reducing traffic levels significantly. They're not talking about reducing economic activity or sort of, you know, that sort of, that's what created the, the conditions to reduce the emissions. And I don't think anyone's suggesting that that should happen. But No, indeed, in the report, I think it's saying no net increase in traffic so no reduction just no but net the, cl the clean air plan said 30 percent, which was picked up it was and the difference explained for that was one covers greater manchester which is the clean air plan and one covers manchester so interesting tension there given that manchester transport uh, manchester emissions 25 percent of them come from transport the thing that jumped out to me, and we'll go on to councillor feedback because it chimes with a lot of what we've been saying. The really thing that stood out to me was they told a story here of, okay, we might need to slow, and by slow I mean double uh, the uh, reductions that we've been able to achieve outside the pandemic, shelve whether or not that's achievable. We might need to reduce more slowly than we had originally planned for a few years while we come up with some really big ambitious ideas possibly and i wonder are they hoping to wait for a more amenable national government to be in by then so something like a huge retrofit project yeah is it a, is a good example if done an ambitious radical program they had a prime example of the potential for a big, ambitious, radical proposal 
in the same meeting, on the same agenda, in the same breath, which was the clean air plan, which we've already discussed. And I would just say that, why not apply it right now? And if they can't do it now, what makes them think they'll do it next year or the year after, such that we'll be in a position where we'll be able to save 29%? Well, it doesn't seem, as you keep saying, you know, they're not willing to confront these difficult issues when it comes to if this might kick up a fuss. They won't lead um, when it may be controversial. But all the numbers tell you that everything that they've got to do will cause some level of controversy. So if you're always running away from controversy, surely all these targets are completely meaningless. Whether it's 13% or 16% or 10%, 29%, you know, they think they can get the sort of conditions in place to unlock private capital, I think it's what they call it, or private investment. Because essentially what they're saying is there isn't enough public money about, so there won't be enough government money, so we need probably pension funds, probably insurance companies to invest in retrofit, to invest in cleaner air, to invest in what is termed some jargon, nature-based solutions, or I can't remember, is that it? Is it was it natural capital? I can't remember. It's Putting grass on roofs? Maybe it's about putting, growing potatoes in paddling pools as... <laughs> Which is what Councillor Rowland does. <laughs> so does she? She supposedly learnt that from a community group. That was in the, the health scrutiny committee, actually. <sighs> Potatoes in paddling pools, that's what we need. Nature-based solutions. Okay, back in the room, Simon. Deeply, deeply depressing. That little nugget. There are so many nuggets. This, this month has been full of nuggets, hasn't it? <laughs> Nuggets of craziness. Maybe the heat's gone to the heads of maybe, some people. Maybe, maybe. Um, Mike Wilton, Sam Nicholson from the agency and the partnership stressed the importance of partnerships. As you say, the cost is too high for the public purse to cover it alone. And I reflect on that, actually. If the importance is, of, is, is squarely on partnerships and the need to... Um, partner, residents, other organisations, councils, all of the above. We have been slightly critical of the Climate Change Partnership in that for all it's been doing, the agency as well, we're not seeing a benefit in the car- in the overall uh, carbon budget. Feels like we need to up our game a little bit in terms of partnerships and maybe we need a bit more transparency from that organisation. We've been squarely looking at the council. Maybe it's time we shifted our focus a little bit or expanded our focus to cover the partnership a bit more. Because if that's where all the action's going on, we need to see more from them. I think that's always going to be difficult because a lot of that action is behind closed doors in private companies, but then there is something called an environmental information request and we could potentially look at using that because supposedly um, private businesses are also um, uh, covered by that specific piece of legislation. So it's going to be some furious Googling after this session's over. Yeah, that yeah, sounds yeah. Like... That was uh, something, a nugget from Pete Abel, at a uh, freedom of of information request workshop we put together. Sounds like a good, a good summer project to get stuck into. 
because we don't have enough summer projects to get stuck into. I saw Councillor Nunny's question, why do we think we'd be able to hit a higher target later than we have already? Are we storing up problems for the future? Exactly the point we put across. It's like someone read a briefing note of ours. <laughs> Mike Wilton responded, pretty much focusing on domestic retrofit, as we've talked about, as it's not one thing that will get us there. It's big. Um, if we insulate all of the houses in... in Manchester sufficiently and get them off um, fossil fuels for heating but he talked about how the national uh, government tried a top-down scheme that didn't engage with the local authorities at all uh, there was many things that went wrong and they didn't apply uh, the, the the supply chain um, and he said that, that was an, exa an example of how not to deliver he said it was the biggest area of failure that was the green homes, green homes grant. Grant. yeah but then at the same point, you know, we don't have tradespeople that are able to actually do the work that needs to be done. Because you think, like, your average resident is not going to become a retrofit expert or, a, you know, overnight. They need people to do things for them, whether that's insulate, whether that's uh, changing their boiler over to a heat pump. Mm -hmm. There's loads of issues stored up in this. It would be really interesting if we did get a Labour government in the next 18 months or however long it might be till the next general election to see how the conversation changes at scrutiny now that they're, well, they might still be relying on blaming the last decade or so of Tory governments and cuts to funding, but how long will that excuse last for? once the Labour government is in place. Until the next one. Yeah, or till the carbon budget runs out. And I think, like, I agree, it is terrifying, but at the same point, if the carbon budget runs out, all that means is that we've, we're have we not going to meet the 1.5 target. Um, it doesn't mean the world is going to burn in a cinder the day after we, we meet that. So we have to keep that in mind. The world will still revolve. It, life will still go on. All it does mean is that heat wave is more likely to happen in the future, mm -hmm. which is just storing up problems uh, for future generations. So, And for every month, year, decade, we don't get to grips with this, the worse it gets for the future. Yeah, yeah the more likely we're going to have more extreme events in the future that's going to cause more harm, both in Manchester, in the UK, and especially in places that we like to change the channel when the news comes out that there's a disaster somewhere. Mm. I'm aware of time uh, and there's a couple of points I just want to pull out. I noticed the, it's a favourite topic of the Climate Change Agency, was this remit of theirs to champion individual responsibility and changing our behaviour as residents. Um, and Sam Nicholson, director of the Climate Change Agency, talked about six to 12 months developing an ongoing campaign that speaks to all of the areas needed, um, domestic retrofit as an example. Uh, and the, the, the evidence suggests that the best approach is an ongoing drop feed constant campaign. What does that mean? I mean, to me that said more of the same from the agency. What have they been doing that isn't that? up to now 
the thing is i like to get with this whole thing is like they're going to target distinct communities or distinct groups of people in specific ways that with messaging that works a lot of it is passive which mm -hmm. means social media which means whilst you might get a lot of impressions you won't necessarily get a lot of engagement or actual like in-depth understanding of an issue um yeah they're certainly never going to say join a climate activist group are they which is probably well for me the most uh important thing they should be telling people to do is is coming together as groups not necessarily have to be activists or whatever else but coming together and working on solutions with other people um they're not you know and holding people to account if they've promised things though i understand that marketing is important i am slightly cynical about the efficacy of what they're proposing but they're the professionals. Described slightly differently over the course of the meeting uh, in, in the reports of being, you know, champions um, to the city, to the residents of the, uh, the city, to good behaviour, sustainable behaviour, but also describing themselves as holding the council accountable. It's, it's interesting sometimes to see from the agency how they view themselves. And it's not always how we view them. Well, most of the people that are in the agency are seconded from the council. Uh, they're council employees that work in this community interest company. So how can council employees hold the council accountable? Discuss. No, don't discuss. We've not, no, got, we've not got enough time for that. <laughs> um, we have enough time to say that the GM Pension Fund got a mention which is a, a long-standing favourite of uh, scrutiny, um, and that is the call for the Greater Manchester Pension Fund to divest from fossil fuel investments. Some other councillor engagement, which um, I'm going to state but probably cut. Um, councillor Wright, why, oh why, do we still not have all the councillors completed their carbon literacy training? In October, I think it's a decade since carbon literacy was uh, launched so maybe we need a carbon literacy special mm -hmm. oh damn it no I sort of do need to um, bring it in here because it wasn't the question so much but it was the response from Tracy Rawlins Councillor Rawlins saying essentially I can only take responsibility for my own actions not other people's in my day job I have mandatory training that I have to complete every year or every six months and it pops up and it tells me I have to complete it now my manager their manager the director all have a stake in that whether I complete my mandatory training so the idea that the the executive member for the environment can only take responsibility for her own actions seems farcical it just seems it, it plays into that point that politicians live by different rules to everyone mm. else, doesn't it? You know, the issue is is like what consequences are there for people that don't do their carbon literacy training? And at the moment, there are no consequences. Therefore, funnily enough, it doesn't get done because people have other important things to do, or they think are important things to do. It is the bare minimum. It is a basic, basic training of watching a David Attenborough. 
documentary on climate change and saying some things that you might commit to do in the future, which, again, it's up to you to decide whether you actually want to do them or not. Do you think that anyone listening to this podcast for, say, three months has uh, achieved the equivalent? Probably. I don't know. We haven't gone into the climate science that much, but, you know, I guess you're on your way. In August, this is a nice way of wrapping up, in August we are going to dive into the Climate Change Framework 2.0. We are going to look at every line. We're going to take it out for a test drive, try and crush it a few times and see what makes it tick. Listen to that and we can give you the official SEM carbon literacy training tick. We are not in any way related or are endorsing carbon literacy training. Terms and conditions apply. Please other, do. <laughs> other carbon training is available, is it? I don't know. I think it is, yeah. Yeah, there are plenty of carbon trainings available. Do any of them. That's great. But des- definitely listen to our podcast in August. Yeah. Yeah, this was brought up actually last month at the low carbon procurement um, piece because obviously they need to know a lot more about yes. potentially greenwashing or understanding how to score what companies are saying in their sort of uh, bids for winning money off the mm-hmm. council. Um, so, yeah, I think like there's definite need for something that's far more advanced than watching a David Attenborough uh, BBC documentary. Yeah. Um, and but, I think there's a huge skills deficit there. Yeah. Councillors don't have any kind of annual review or target setting or objectives. Or personal development plan. You know, all <laughs> Guarantee they've got a personal development plan can't move for personal development plans or even it seems sometimes that codes of conduct skills audit i joined climate emergency manchester core group and the first thing that we talked about was we should all have personal development plans and a skills audit to work out where you might want to develop your skills and what you've already got to offer to other people oh okay i rescind my offer of joining the core group then. <laughs> little window into our own operations there everyone lauren and Adam, thank you so much. Another month of good scrutiny of the scrutineers. Uh, we're back in August to dive into that framework. Have a lovely few weeks off. Treat yourself. And see you on the other side. Look forward to it. Yeah, that should be interesting. Hopefully no more heat waves. <laughs> I'm a bit worried that people are going to think I actually use the word hollybobs. (laughs) And I I went and googled hollybobs in Urban Dictionary and it's described as a word used by twee pricks who deserve a punch in the face (laughs) (laughs) for using stupid words like this instead of saying holiday. These are the sorts of things that I can understand why people vote for Brexit. It's like, this is what EU money gets you. We are you. not getting into Brexit before I stop recording. Um, <laughs> let me just do one, that last sentence one more time and then we can stop.